turn with me back uh, again to Mark chapter 16. Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. Listen to God's holy, infallible word uh, as it's read. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Recently, uh, rewatched on TV the beginning of the Captain America movie from the last decade or so. If, if you haven't seen it or don't know the story, um, the, the main character... Steve Rogers is this puny little guy from uh, New York. Yeah, he has a big heart, but he gets beat up a lot because he's so small. Um, he desperately wants to enlist uh, to fight in World War II. That's the timing of the story. Uh, but he's asthmatic, and he's weak, and he's so small. Uh, and so he keeps getting rejected by, by military recruiters. But as the story goes, because of his boldness, because he, he uh, has a big heart, his moral strength, he's drafted into this secret experimental uh, program where he's injected with a serum that makes him suddenly, you know, 6'6 and super strong and super fast. Uh, and of course, um, he eventually becomes Captain America in that form. It helps the U.S. defeat the Nazis. Well, it was that one, it was that one event, that experiment for Steve Rogers that completely transformed his life, transformed his identity, how he saw himself and how other people saw him, his outlook on life, his expectation about what he could do and achieve, uh, what could or could not harm him, and so on. That kind of dramatic uh, reality-altering transformation is generally the stuff of science fiction and comic books. But uh, in thinking about and applying the resurrection this morning, the reality of the resurrection... I want you to realize it is dramatically reality-altering and identity-altering, life-shaping for you as one who is united to Christ Jesus, who is raised from the dead. Uh, It doesn't transform you outwardly yet, uh, you know, into a super soldier or or something. Uh, The outward reality of life or joys and fears and struggles and even death are all shared by humanity. But for those who are united to Jesus, because he raised from the dead, your life, not just your future, but your life now, is transformed uh, completely. Who you are, how you think of yourself, uh, how you experience hardship, where your hope, where your security lies. And that's what we want to look, consider this morning. It's, it's been my great privilege to preach through the Gospel of Mark uh, this last year and a half or so. 
Um, this is the 59th, uh, if anyone's counting, and final uh, sermon in this series uh, through this gospel. As I said recently in, in January, beginning uh, a series on the Ten Commandments. Um, but here's how I want to look at this last passage this morning. The three points that you see in your outline, the numbered ones, one, two, and three, I want to just walk through this familiar account and, and stop at a few points and make a few applications that the New Testament does um, uh, of the resurrection to our lives and to our thinking. Um, but first, and then we'll come back to this briefly at the end, I want to talk about verses 9 through 20 uh, in, in chapter 16 that you see here and why I'm not including those verses in, in this sermon series and why, why we would stop with verse 8. So let's begin there. What about verses 9 through 20? Uh, unless you have a version of the King James, the King James, you know, New King James or something, uh, those verses, 9 through the end, in your Bible will be italicized or bracketed or somehow set off um, with a note, um, as is in the NAS here, something to the effect that these verses are, are doubted, uh, they're, that they're original. And that's, that's really putting it mildly uh, to, say that they're, to say that they're doubted. Uh, just, just some background to this, so, talking about the New Testament. So as, as far as we know, uh, in terms of um, the New Testament books, we, we don't have, there, there aren't in, in existence still any of the original uh, books from the New Testament. So the original paper and ink that, that Luke or, or Paul uh, wrote with. Um, what we do have, we, and we, we call those autographs uh, typically, uh, what we do have is, is over 5,000 manuscripts, uh, uh, Greek copies uh, of, uh, of the New Testament or, or pieces of the New Testament. So that's from little, small little fragments to entire copies of the New Testament or entire copies of books of the New Testament, uh, over 5,000. Those date from as late as the turn of the first millennium right around there all the way back to the second century A.D., the, the early 100s uh, A.D., um, and there's incredible agreement among those thousands of manuscripts. Uh, it's one of the key things that gives us confidence about the accuracy of the New Testament. Um, so many copies, such careful preservation, such agreement between them. Um, it, it's really totally incomparable with, with any other ancient texts. Uh, take other important, well-known ancient texts. Plato's writings, for example. Uh, Plato's writings... Uh, the ancient copies that we have of that are, f- are f- far, far fewer than what we have of the New Testament. Um, and they're much, much later uh, in history than what we have of the New Testament. And yet his, his authorship and the text of those are not, not really doubted by scholars. Um, there are variations uh, between manuscripts of the, of the New Testament or the New Testament books. You know, you have a, a copy of Mark here and a copy of Mark there. Um, or Luke, or whatever it is, uh, there are little variations here and there, a a word that's different, or a spelling that's different, or a word that's left out. The vast majority of those are very minor, um, and the majority don't change really the meaning of the sentence, let alone the meaning of the the message um, uh, overall. Uh, The the biggest exception to that, to what I'm saying, is the ending of Mark. So the ending of Mark is is the biggest textual problem, the biggest textual question uh, in the New Testament uh, by, by a long shot. Um, and overwhelmingly, scholars believe, and I, I'm speaking even of, of conservative, biblical-believing scholars, believe that these verses are not original. Uh, they're not part of 
the original Gospel of Mark. So that's why they're bracketed off like they are in your Bible. Um, why, why would that be? Uh, why, why do we believe that? Um, interesting to note first, most, a majority of those New Testament manuscripts that we have that include Mark actually have this ending. Uh, they have verse 9 through 20, and you might think, well, doesn't that lean towards thinking that they're original? Uh, it, it doesn't actually. The earliest and most important manuscripts that we have uh, don't include these verses. Um, several of the earliest translations of the Bible, so that would be going from Greek into something else, into Latin, uh, typically don't include these verses. Um, some of the early church fathers provide int- uh, important evidence in this. So uh, one example is Clement. Clement is, is a very early, a very important church father. He, his life actually overlapped with the apostles. That's how early he was. Uh, he shows knowledge in his writings of the New Testament, the whole New Testament as we have it, but clearly doesn't, when he's talking about Mark, doesn't know about these verses, uh, 9 through the end. Uh, go forward a couple hundred years, other church fathers, uh, Eusebius, for example, and Jerome, uh, both of them uh, note an awareness of this ending, verses 9 through 20, but they, don't, they believe it's not original, and they say almost all the Greek texts they know of don't include it uh, in their time. Um, there are um, many, many of the ancient copies that have these verses also include which was very rare, a scribal note, sort of like a note in your study Bible or something that says, we don't think this is original. <laughs> um, apparently, evidently they included it anyways just to be safe or, or something, I guess. Um, uh, other line of evidence is just studying the, the text. Um, in other words, it just doesn't fit very well. It doesn't sound like Mark or fit his story. And, and that's especially can be pointed out by, by Greek scholars. But you, I think if you go and read this later, uh, you, can, you can have that sense clearly just reading it in the English, uh, even. It really doesn't sound like the rest of Mark. Um, just a few examples of that, uh, more particularly. Uh, each of the gospel writers is very consistent in the titles they, they use for Jesus. So, uh, you know, whether Matthew particularly using Son of Man or, or so on. Um, in this ending here, Jesus is called the Lord Jesus. It's a very appropriate title, but Mark nowhere else in the entire gospel calls him that. Um, That's just one example. There are 18 words in these last few verses that are completely new to the Gospel of Mark. He hasn't used them at all, and that's statistically extraordinary. Um, uh, Another specific example, if you look at verse 9, Mary Magdalene is introduced as if she's never been introduced yet in the book. Uh, When she has, multiple times, just a few verses before, there there are some clunky things like that, um, uh, and so on. So I think it's fairly safe to assume that, that these verses were not written by Mark. Uh, one, one interesting point I want to make, though, is that in, in the early centuries, in the first millennium, there were many writings that arose about Jesus, um, some of what we call the apocryphal gospels. So the Gospel of Thomas, for example, would be an example of that. Um, writings about Jesus that, that contradict the, the gospels that have been received from the beginning, uh, as the true account of Jesus' life. Uh, they, they have other myths and that, and that kind of thing. Um, the ending of Mark here, as we have it, verse 9 through the end, uh, does not have anything uh, from the Apocryphal Gospels. Uh, it has nothing but what is simply in Matthew, Luke, and John. Um, it, it accords perfectly. So there's nothing, there's nothing inaccurate here, um, nothing extra-biblical. 
in any way, and that's evidence that whoever wrote this ending had the three Gospels, it seems, wrote this very early, and it's further evidence of the, they, they held the other three Gospels to be the authoritative source about Jesus' life. So it's, it's just further conf- confirmation the early church received Matthew, Luke, and John as, as the authoritative inspired counts of Jesus' life. Why, why would someone write a different ending? Um, well, it, it seems likely that very early on that, that Mark's ending was lost. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about that in a moment, but um, that, that could happen with ancient codexes, so it's sort of a, the, an ancient precursor to a book, right? just pages of papyrus or whatever they had stacked and, and sewn on one side. But without the quality of paper that we have or, or the hard book covers that we have, and so it wasn't uncommon that the front page or the back page would wear out or fall off, be torn off. Um, so if that's what happened, it seems maybe someone with, with good intention, for sure, wanted to supply the ending. Uh, that, that had been lost very early from, from Mark. So that's, that's one possibility. Uh, but another question to consider is, is the original ending lost? Uh, or did Mark perhaps intend to end at verse 8? Uh, some, uh, a small minority, but some, some argue that that's the case. Uh, they would say, yes, it, verse 8 kind of feels abrupt, like, like he didn't end the story, but, but that was Mark's intent. Um, the women leave in fear, and, and so the reader is left wondering how are they going to respond. And they would point to some of the other interactions of Jesus with people or miracles where we don't really get the end of the story for that person. You know, what, what did they then do with their life? What was their ultimate decision about Jesus? And so the, the reader is invited to, you know, examine your own heart. How would you respond? Uh, you have not seen the risen Jesus. Will you respond to him uh, in faith? Um, I, I had a seminary professor who I, I don't think intended to um, reveal his leaning one way or the other, but, but I think um, maybe le- leaned toward that understanding uh, that this was Mark's intended ending. I, I'm not convinced that, that's, um, that that makes a lot of sense, that this is where Mark intended to end. I think a better case can be made that Mark's uh, original ending after verse 8 was lost. Um, Again, whether because the page broke off or some suggested because it's assumed Mark was very old when he wrote this, maybe he died. He wrote verse 8 and he died. Um, that's also a possibility. Um, I think one of the reasons for that, the suggestion that Mark ended intentionally, dramatically at verse 8, it has more to do with modern literary theory. Um, it's not so uncommon in, in the modern world for someone to write an exciting novel and to leave it sort of a cliffhanger as, as part of their style. Um, you know, leave you to imagine how this ended. That's not how ancients wrote at all. It's not how the Gospels are written. They state their conclusions very clearly. Um, there are other things that make it that unlikely. Mark begins the Gospel, the very first verse, with a bold proclamation of Jesus as the Son of God. Um, and then he ends abruptly, negatively with fear. That, that, seemed, that would seem very, very strange. Um, verse 8 seems to break off in mid-sentence, too. In, in the Greek, it ends with a, a preposition with the Greek word gar or for. Uh, it's, it's wrapped up very tidily in our English translations. Um, but in the Greek, it's, it's possible to end a sentence with a preposition, but it's very rare. Uh, sort of like English, it's, it's still, many people I don't think know this, but it's still considered improper, at least in writing, to end your sentences with a preposition. Um, an, an editor will catch that. Um, 
Another thing, all, all three times that Jesus predicts that he's going to suffer and die to his disciples, he also predicts the resurrection. And then in, verse four, in chapter 14, uh, he tells them he's going to meet them in Galilee after all of this. And, and it seems odd that Mark wouldn't show us the wonderful conclusion to that as the other gospel writers do. So we could talk more about this. Um, maybe I've already said more than you were interested to know, but I think it's an important thing to, um, to understand. So let's, let's turn our attention to the end of Mark as we have it um, and consider three points of application that the New Testament draws to about the resurrection. Then we'll come back to this um, at the end uh, for a moment. Um, so looking at number one in your outline, in, in the first couple of verses here, again, uh, these three women come having, having put off what they're doing because of the Sabbath. The day before, they come as soon as possible Sunday morning to do further burial process uh, for, for Jesus' body, to honor his body and prepare, prepare it to decay. I noted last time that the fact that uh, women are here as, as the chief uh, witnesses to, to Jesus' burial and his resurrection is powerful evidence of the resurrection uh, because of uh, how women were viewed in that culture at that time. Uh, years later, the, the church father Origen uh, would be uh, taunted in the writings of Celsus, who was a uh, pagan Roman writer, uh, for believing in the resurrection, which he says is just the gossip of women that those Christians believe. Uh, verse 3, their conversation on the way is, is who's going to move this stone? It was common for tombs uh, to be cut out of the rock, um, and, and multiple bodies for generations of families would be used by, by, in one tomb often. Um, but then another stone would be rounded and put in a groove to roll back and forth in front of the tomb. Um, and verse 4 notes this one was exceptionally large, and so even all three of these women assume they're not going to be able to move it. Uh, they're going to have to find some help when they get there uh, to move it. Uh, but as they, as they approach, they note that it's already been rolled away. And they find this young man sitting by the tomb there, dressed in white. And, and Matthew is a little bit um, clearer in, in what he says. He says this is an angel. It's an angel from God. Um, and that the angel rolled the, the, the stone away. And I want to call your attention then to verse 6. The angel says, Do not be amazed. You, who are, you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, but uh, who has been crucified, he has risen. He is not here. Um, in the main, what the angel says to the women in verses 6 and 7 is wonderful news. They're gracious words and, and instructions. But there's perhaps a little bit of an, a rebuke to the women, too. Just a, a slight rebuke as well. You, they say, you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. In other words, you're looking for the dead. You're looking for death. You're making plans for a body to decay forever. But a body that is not and was never going to be here by now. Right? It implies what they should have known and what they should have believed. Certainly the disciples were, were told this many times. He was going to rise. He, he is risen. In verse 7, he, he says, go tell the disciples. This, it's, it's just as he told you. This is what he said would happen. You're looking for death and ending where, where in hope and faith you should be looking for new life, for resurrection, for beginning, uh, for victory. Uh, you, you shouldn't have come here this morning in, in mopey resignation, 
but in eager anticipation about what you were told. And there's a lesson for our lives as well. Uh, Jesus' resurrection means that your resurrection, my resurrection, are assured. Uh, They are your possession now. Uh, You you have resurrection life, in a sense, now, uh, despite appearances. Paul says in Romans 8, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And in 1 Corinthians 6, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. And I want to encourage you to hope in your resurrection, to think about it. Uh, Let that shape how you see yourself, how you see your life. Uh, Here's where we put together what we talked about a couple weeks ago, the theology of the cross. Understanding that the cross has, has more to say about the shape of our lives, what we experience now in this life, than the resurrection does. But we put this together with the reality of the resurrection. The resurrection life and hope. The resurrection life doesn't mean that we won't suffer. It doesn't mean we aren't called to willingly face trials and persecution and death with with loyalty, with trust in Christ. But it does mean that you are indestructibly, irreversibly, undoubtedly safe in the arms of Jesus forever. You will live forever with a new body. That that is your reality. Uh, Death has no hold. It has no lasting sting for you. Uh, You face suffering with with grief and tears and prayers and pain, but not with mopey resignation, Uh, not with despair. Uh, You're to be looking for and thinking about the resurrection as the women there at the the tomb should have been that that morning. I think it is implied by the the angels here, the angel. Um, The present reality of the resurrection life for you is is so real and powerful. Uh, One way Paul puts the reality of the Christian in life is that you are raised with Christ and already, in a spiritual sense, seated with him in heaven. I remember what Jesus said to Martha when, when Lazarus died in, in the Gospel of John. Martha came to Jesus said, if, if you'd only been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. Where were you? And Jesus responds, he will rise again. And Martha says, I know, I know, I, I believe that he will Rise again in the resurrection sometime in the future. And Jesus responds, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? In other words, Jesus was saying to Martha, "You're, you're right to hope in the future resurrection, but do you see that anyone who is in me by faith has resurrection life now, in a real sense, right? In, in a real sense, you, Martha, will never die. So let the resurrection shape how you view trials in this life. Second point I want to make is not as explicitly maybe taken from this passage, but closely related to this first point. Again, look at verse 7, the rest of what the angel says. He says, go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. I think implicit in this account and and made clear in the rest of the New Testament for sure is that life is absolutely transformed by this event. Uh, Here's how Jesus' word through Paul further interprets the significance of the resurrection. 
for Christ's people. In Romans 6, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Again, the angels implying this was, this was God's plan all along. A living Savior and that you would live for him forever. So go to him. Believe, begin that life. Uh, because you are united to Jesus. Uh, death and sin have died. They've been defeated in you. So live like it. That's a major encouragement of the New Testament. Live in obedience to your risen Savior. Live as who you are. As one who has resurrection life. Live in obedience to the new creature that you are. In Colossians 2, Paul writes, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You were, in a sense, raised with Christ to new life. And in Colossians 3, Paul begins, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God has everything to say about how you live and how you think now. You've been raised with Christ. And thirdly, I want to draw your attention to the astonishment of these women. Verse 5 says they were amazed. They had much to be amazed about. The, the stone was already moved. There's an angel here. The tomb is empty. Um, it, it's maybe too mild an English word. Um, but it, it, it has, in the Greek, a, a nuances of astonishment. Um, alarm, even fright, uh, not just being, being amazed, but uh, you know, at the very least, anyone in Scripture who sees an angel is terrified. Right? Our pop culture image of a feminine fairy with wings has kind of destroyed the, the biblical picture of an angel, which is a, always a terrifying warrior from heaven. Right? The response of when someone in the Bible meets an angel, their response is not, oh, look, a cute angel. Right? It's always, they're terrified. They think they're going to die. What's the first thing an angel always says? Don't be afraid. You're not going to die. It's not what it looks like. Right? Their fear and wonder before all of these things, though, is, is appropriate to this mind-blowing, world-changing event. Um, and, and so what I want to suggest to you is that maybe you need to recover astonishment at the resurrection. The astonishment of the resurrection. Death is so grievous, it's so final in our experience. You know, imagine seeing someone in a casket, as you probably have, cold and colorless and, and gaunt, and then suddenly regaining color and breath and sitting up alive. Imagine the astonishment. You've never seen anything like that. It would change your life. That's the kind of astonishment at what the power of God has done, the power of God that is at work in and for you in Christ. And that's, that's what Paul prays that believers would know. Listen to how Paul tells the Ephesians that he prays for them. Uh, in Ephesians 1, he prays that they would, they would see with the eyes of faith what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power 
and a dominion. In other words, the the power that raised Jesus from stone-cold dead, his body, to eternally, omnipotently alive, it is according to that power. It's the same power that he works for your sake. And Paul prays the Ephesians would really believe that, that they would really grasp that in everyday life. And how life-changing would it be if, if that fact was front and center of, in our minds as we struggle daily with disappointment, fear, and sadness, and conflict? Verse 8 makes clear the, woman, the women didn't fully grasp that yet. Uh, they leave in astonishment and fear. Although Matthew, in Matthew's version, he tells us they left with fear and joy. Um, so they're beginning to feel the implications of what's happened, perhaps. Uh, they, similar with the disciples, though, they go and tell the disciples, and they're slow to accept it. Of course, at this point, what we're reading here in Mark, the disciples, where are they? They're, they're hiding, discouraged and depressed in fearful resignation, uh, afraid of the Jews, John 20 says. Um, they've locked themselves in the attic, essentially, uh, cowering and wondering what's next now that following Jesus seems to have failed. And yet one of, the, one of the great questions for readers of the New Testament, really we might say readers of history, one of the great questions is how can all 11 of the apostles go from that, from, from cowering in fear and believing that all is lost, to overnight boldly proclaiming a message that likely got every one of them killed and martyred? What can explain just a few days later that there's this disconnect between their, their bold profession, Jesus, we'll, we'll do anything for you, we'll die for you, and a few hours later, abandoning him in fear, and then suddenly boldly proclaiming Jesus, welcoming imprisonment and beatings and publicly identifying with Jesus until they were crucified and hanged and dismembered themselves for the sake of Christ. What can explain that? Only the resurrection. Only that Jesus was really and bodily raised from the dead. Uh, They came not only to believe firmly and fully that that Jesus' word was true, that he was the Messiah, but also, I think what Paul prayed, that they were convinced of the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Um, After the resurrection, the ascension, they, they went out into the world with confidence that they were ambassadors of an all-powerful, death-defying, immortal, and good king, and that there was nowhere that they could go to preach the gospel over which Jesus wasn't sovereign as king, uh, where he wouldn't be at work to to conquer hearts, where he wouldn't be with them. Uh, And I want to encourage you in the same this morning, to be encouraged and comforted. Uh, One thing Christians say a lot, um, and it's quite true in one sense, they say the world is not our home. Hebrews 13 says as much. can't disagree with it in some sense. It's true if we understand it rightly. It's true in the sense that the the current form of this world, this age, this godless, sinless world, all that it offers in competition with living for the Lord, uh, the life of worldliness, this is not your life. This is not your home. It's not true in the sense that we are simply waiting to escape this world and float off in some ethereal heaven. For eternity, That's not a biblical vision at all. Uh, God's design is and always have been that you will live in your physical body, raised 
forever in a renewed earth, in a renewed creation. And so this physical world, because of the resurrection, in that sense, is your home. This is your home. It's it's only truly home for believers, for the church. Jesus is renewing his creation. The creation, Paul says, is groaning, eagerly waiting to be renewed when Jesus comes again. The risen Jesus is powerfully at work to give you this Renewed world, a renewed body one day. This, this land, this nation, every square inch on earth belongs to King Jesus and will be part of his kingdom. And, and as his beloved, as his people, uh, you, you belong in this world in that sense. It, it's those who reject him as Savior who are illegal aliens, who are trespassing. This is not their home. This is the kingdom of Jesus. We pray that it would be. For everyone, that they would turn to him. Uh, Remember that as you face opposition. That's the boldness with which the disciples went out because of the resurrection. Uh, Remember that Jesus sends you out into this world as his ambassadors to, um, with his authority, to call the nations to bow the knee to his gracious rule. That leads me to the final point, the conclusion on your outline. I'm going to circle back to this lost ending of Mark here and, and, and ask, how might Mark have ended his gospel? Uh, we can't know. We don't know. Um, but I want to point to a very good possibility and, and a final encouragement in that. Um, as, as any Bible scholar knows, Matthew and Mark uh, follow along pretty closely, the two gospels. Um, Generally underst- it's generally understood for various reasons we won't go into now that Mark was the first gospel and that Matthew is uh, using Mark as a source or they're using the same source. Um, Matthew has more material. Matthew is longer, uh, but, but he's pretty much following the same uh, order of events uh, as Mark and, and often they're very close in wording uh, where they have the same stuff. Uh, one notable example of that uh, is the last three verses of Mark here. Chapter 16, 6 through 8. Uh, it's nearly verbatim in Matthew. The same, same verses, and then Mark cuts off. And, and Mark's, uh, Mark's done, or the ending is lost. Uh, but Matthew goes on, of course, to give us the post-resurrection story uh, at the end of Matthew 28. Um, and I want to read a bit of that in just a moment. But, but a couple other parallels to note. Bo- both Matthew and Mark record Jesus' promise to see the disciples again in Galilee. Right? On that, that night of Jesus' arrest, and di- disciples were making great boasts and then failing greatly. Jesus yet graciously promises he'll see him in Galilee. Matthew, of course, goes on to tell us about that reunion. And, and Mark uh, ends here. Um, but it seems likely Mark was heading in that direction. Maybe Matthew got his ending from Mark, uh, again, as with much of the rest of his gospel. Another striking parallel is the theme of authority. Uh, in both Matthew and Mark. And every place that, that Matthew has something about the authority of Jesus as the Son of God, the exousia of Jesus in, in Greek, uh, Mark has it as well. With one exception, that's the last place that Jesus mentions his authority in, Ma- in Matthew 28 because it's after the resurrection and, and we don't have uh, Mark's account there. Um, but it points again the likelihood that Mark would have reflected that same theme again in his gospel. So 
it seems very reasonable, I think, very likely that Mark originally ended his gospel uh, the way Matthew does. And so I want to read the last several verses of Matthew 28 uh, as a conclusion to uh, this series and and to Mark's gospel as a likely suggestion uh, how he concluded. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16, the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus has designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And and what could be more comforting and emboldening and motivating to Christians than that? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, the opportunity to uh, study this book, this gospel of Jesus, as it's come through your servant Mark. uh, These uh, months that we've um, been listening to your word here, Uh, we thank you for this account of his raising from the dead, uh, conquering sin and death uh, for us. We thank you for the reminders that we are raised to new life in him. And just pray that you would give us reflection on these things today and in coming days, that more and more we would uh, think and live as those who are raised to new life. We pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.